was a young girl who grew up in captivity. Her people had been taken over by another group, and they'd been hauled off in a great line off to a foreign country to be enslaved there. She was born in captivity, so she'd never known her homeland, but she knew the traditions of her people. And in fact, she came of age during a time when things loosened up a bit and some of the folks were allowed to go back to the home country. Her parents died when she was quite young. And a foster father, a cousin of her father, decided to raise her. And he loved her greatly and he taught her deeply. And they had a bond deeper than the father and the daughter could have even had. It was so... It was just so tremendous for her to be cared for, to be loved. Her foster father was fairly important. He sat in the place where the leaders sat and discussed things with the leaders of the community in this foreign land. But his real heart was raising his foster daughter, who grew into a very beautiful young woman. The king of that area was really quite liberal, quite generous. He threw large parties and not only invited the ambassadors from the other countries, but on, on one occasion he invited the entire city, the entire capital city for a long feast, a seven-day long feast in his private gardens. And, and he said, spare no wine, spare no expense. I want all the people to enjoy the kingdom. So he, he had a really gracious side. But he also had another side. During that celebration, he thought of his queen, who was very beautiful. And he thought, I want all the ambassadors to see my, my first queen, the one I'm the proudest of. And so send for her, and I, I want her to come, and I want to show them her beauty. And apparently, the queen didn't exactly like this idea of being shown off as an object to be viewed by all these ambassadors and by the whole city, and she refused to come. Well, this was uh, before the Day of Liberation. The king asked his cabinet what he should do, and they said, uh, you better make quick work of this or the word's going to spread. And every woman in the kingdom will treat every husband in the kingdom this way, and it'll be a complete mess. So he had her banished immediately. She was persona non grata. She was sent away. Everybody in the kingdom knew her, and everybody from then on, I'm sure, treated her with disdain. It was immediate, it was swift, and it was complete. And he began later to look for a queen to take her place. So he sent his people out throughout the, the whole countryside to find the most beautiful women in the country. And this young girl, her name was Esther, was one of the many thousands chosen to be interviewed to be looked at, to be thought of as the possibility to be the first queen in the kingdom. And as things would go out of the hundreds, she found favor with one of the, the key people in the cabinet who was in charge of this search. And when she came, as many others had already come before the king, he was immediately struck with her. He was struck with her beauty. He was struck with her person. He said, this is the woman. She will be my new queen. And so Esther, this woman born in slavery, became 
the queen of this empire. Her foster father had told her to be very careful not to tell that she was from the Jewish race, the people that had been enslaved. To be very careful to keep that part quiet, and so she did. And so the king never knew that. Now the king had a right-hand man. This right-hand man was very bright. He was upwardly mobile. He was educated. He was sharp. He was ambitious. He wanted to make a name for himself. And he grew up through the ranks and he became the right-hand person of the king, completely trusted. Whatever he said was like a command of the king. His name was Haman. He was sharp. He had an MBA from Harvard. But there was one thing that bothered Haman. Though he was second only to the king, there was one man who didn't show him honor. One man in the entire kingdom. The king had ordered everyone to bow when Haman walked in the room. He so honored Haman. He was so sharp. He was so strategic. He was so ruthless. But he was a great aid to the king and his policies. And there was one man in the kingdom who would not bow down to Haman. And it just, just gnawed away at it, Haman. It was Esther's foster father, whose name was Mordecai. He sat in the city gate where the leaders would sit. And whenever Haman would come, the other leaders would bow down and Mordecai would just stand. He was a Jew. He would bow to no man. He would bow only to God is the implication. But it got to Haman and Haman hated Mordecai, Esther's foster father. And he said, I'm going to kill that man. And then he thought, no, that's not good enough. I'm going to wipe out his entire family. And then he thought, no, that's not good enough. I'm going to wipe out his entire race. The first holocaust for the Jewish people. Actually, not the first. Something similar happened in Egypt. So he set out a word. He got the permission of the king. He didn't tell him what race it was. He just said, there's a race of people in your kingdom, and, and, and they're not very good for your king. And we should set a date, and we should send out messages to every province, every city, every little village, and tell the people that are not of this race that on a certain day, at a certain hour, they're to rise up and kill every single Jewish person in the, in the empire. And in one day, we'll wipe them out. Well, the king trusted Haman. He had many other things. He didn't know how many people were involved. He just said, you know, do, do as it's been said. So we sent out these, these decrees. The people in the countryside got them. The word got out. You can't keep something like that secret. The Jewish people heard about it. They started to weep and to mourn and to put on ash cloth and, and or put on uh, sackcloth and ashes. And Mordecai himself put on sackcloth and threw ashes on his hair and wept loudly in the gate. Now the queen... His foster daughter, Esther, didn't know why. She didn't know anything about the edict. Of course, she was up in the palace. And, but she heard that her foster father was weeping and wailing in the city gate. And she sent word, what, what is wrong? What's going on, father? And he sent word back. A very frightening word to her. He told her exactly what Haman had done. And he said this. He said... This is your time, Esther. You need to go to the king, and you need to expose this, and you need to ask him to change the decision. Now, that sounds easy enough in our culture for a wife to go talk to her husband, for a queen to go talk to the king about an edict. But in, in that setting, when the king sat in his, in his courtroom, in his courtyard, 
No one was allowed to enter under sentence of death unless he asked for them to come. No one, including the queen. And we've already seen what he did to the first queen. So we know that when he gives an order, no one can come into my presence without my permission. In fact, if they do, they'll be put to death. Then this word of her foster father, Esther, go to the king now and tell him this was a sentence of certain death. The only way it could be changed is if when she walked into his presence, if for some strange reason he reached his scepter out and she touched it, if he reached it out and extended it to her, it was a sign that he wanted to grant mercy. But to just walk in the door was to walk into a death trap, literally. This painting here, by Felix Joseph Barrios from the modern French school is a painting of Esther entering the court of her husband, the king. It's a fascinating picture. If you look at it in detail, you'll notice the difference between the background and the foreground. Esther's in the foreground. Her shoulders are back. She's dressed beautifully. She's dignified. She's looking up at the king. At this moment, you can't tell what the king is going to do. You don't see the king. He's, he's back here where we are, looking toward her. She's looking up at him. Everything is chaos in the background. Everything is disorderly in the background. People are covering their heads. People are looking this way and that way. Only Esther, in her courage, in her faith, is standing erect, looking forcefully, straightforwardly into the eyes of death. Wondering what his decision will be. Well, the king loved Esther. He was taken by her. He reached forth his scepter. The sentence was not death, but life. And he said, come, Esther, tell me what's on your mind. Tell me what what is it that you want, that you would come in here knowing that you shouldn't have, but come and tell me. I'll give you anything you ask for up to half of my kingdom. Now, I should mention that before she did this, she told her foster father, get all the Jewish people in the entire country and have them fast for three days and pray. And I and my maids will do the same thing. And only then will I walk into the presence of the king. Only when thousands of people have been praying for three days and fasting, only then will I step foot in. And she told her father, and if I perish, I perish. And he said, look, this may be exactly why you were put in such a place to bring salvation to your people. This may be why you were elevated to be queen. But God will bring in a salvation even if you choose not to obey, but you'll suffer for it. Your entire family will die, and you yourself. She stepped in, knowing that she might perish, and she faced the king. Now, interestingly enough, he said, "What, what do you want, Esther? Up to half my kingdom, I'll give it to you. And she said, uh, have Haman come to a banquet tonight. And they came to a banquet. Haman's feeling pretty good because the first queen has invited him to a banquet. And so they come to the banquet and, and the king says, what is it you want, Esther? Up to half my kingdom, I'll give it to you. And she says, you know, if you would just indulge me one more day and, and have Haman come back tomorrow for a banquet that I have more time to prepare and make it very special. And he says, all right. And so Haman goes back to his home, and on his way back to the home, there's Mordecai in the city gate, and everybody else bows to Haman, and Mordecai stands there. Ah, oh, just, as they, they, 
They say in Australia, they say it got up his nose. It annoyed him. It got his goat. He just he went home to his family. He says, I've been honored by the queen. I've been honored by the king. I'm going to this fabulous banquet, but I can't stand this Mordecai. And I can't wait. And they said, well, don't wait. Have a gallows built and hang him tomorrow. You've got the power to do that. We'll take care of the rest of those Jews a little later down the road. And he thought, that's a good idea. I'll, I'll build a gallows. And I'll not just build a gallows. I'll build it 70 feet tall. That'll get the point across. Seven stories tall. Guy was into overstatement. Well, he goes that night, interestingly, while he was deciding to build the gallows, the king was having trouble sleeping. And the king uh, couldn't sleep, so he did what we did. He, he got a boring book to read so that maybe he could fall asleep. He got the Chronicles of the Kingdom. Not exactly, you know, exciting reading. And he's reading there and he reads, back a number of years earlier, there was a man named Mordecai who uncovered a plot to assassinate the king and who warned the king about the plot and saved his life. And there had been a royal decree that said Mordecai should be honored. And the king read this and he thought, I don't remember Mordecai and I don't remember him being honored. So he calls in his assistants in the middle of the night, and he says, what's been done for this man Mordecai? He saved my life years ago. He uncovered a plot. We were supposed to honor him. What, what was done for him? And they said, actually, uh, nothing was done. Fell through the cracks. Got stuck on voicemail. I can relate. Did you like my voicemail? It could have been worse. (laughs) I was thanking Jesus after I heard it. So the king says, what's been done? He says, nothing's been done. And he says, well, we've got to. The man saved my life. The next morning, in comes Haman. In fact, actually, right as the king was saying that to his assistant, must have been early in the morning, Haman walks into the court. The king says, who is that? Oh, it's Haman. Come here, Haman. What should a king do to honor a man more than any other man in the kingdom? And Haman, arrogant as he was, assumed, well, the king's thinking about me. I got an MBA from Harvard, you know. And he says, well, You should get one of the horses you've ridden and give it to him. You should get one of the robes you've worn and put it on him. You should have one of the crowns that you wear and put it on his head. And then you should choose your highest prince to lead the horse with this gentleman on top, whoever it may be, around the city. And and have someone proclaim, this is what the king does for a man he honors. And the king says, that is a tremendous idea, Haman. That is, uh, that is fabulous. In fact, I'm going to choose you, and he's thinking, I knew it, to lead the horse. <laughs> and I want you right away to go to the city gate and get Mordecai and put him on it. And of course, you can't show any disfavor in the eyes of a king, and so he had to go do it. And here he is, getting Mordecai on the horse, putting the royal robe on and putting the crown and leading him all through the city. He goes, he goes home discouraged. The very man he planned to hang on the gallows. 
And his family says, you're in big trouble. You're fighting against the Jewish people. And it's pretty apparent you're not going to win. Just then there's a knock on the door. It's the king's servants beckoning Haman to the second banquet that Esther has planned for him. Where she's going to present her petition to the king. No one knows what it is. And they rush him off. He doesn't even have time to hide or get away. The timing is flawless. And he's rushed into the banquet. And at the end of the banquet, the king says, Now, Esther, dear, please, up to half my kingdom, just tell us, what is your request? And she says eloquently, My request is that you spare my life, O king. And the king must have thought, Spare your life. Your life's not in danger. You're the queen. He still must not apparently have known that she was Jewish. And she says, and spare the life of my people. Because a wicked person has devised a plot to kill both your queen and all of her people. And he says, who is this vile man? She turns and says, it's Haman. The king gets in a rage. He flies up from the table. He's so mad. He storms out the door to the garden. Haman realizes, I'm not going to win with the king. Maybe I can beg for mercy from the queen. The queen is lying on a couch, as was the custom in those days, around the table. And he goes over and puts himself before the couch and reaches up toward her. Just then the king comes in. He says, and now, not only were you going to kill the queen, not only were you going to kill her people, now you're molesting her on the couch. And Haman knew his odds had just diminished. And the guards rushed in and they put the executioner's uh, hood over his face. And they took him out and they hung him on a 70-foot high gallow right next to his house. And the king issued an edict which saved all of the people of Israel and which enabled them to fight against the people who were going to put them to death. Esther. Jesus said, he who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. Esther had an obedience of courage. An obedience against all odds. An obedience to do the right thing at the right time, even though she hadn't heard an inner voice. Interestingly enough, the book of Esther never mentions God directly. God is all through the book with the timing of events. But he's never mentioned directly. She didn't have a vision. She didn't have a burning bush. She didn't even have a voice. She just knew what was right to do, and she did it out of courage. He who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he'll be loved by my Father, and I will love him and show myself to him. That's what Jesus said. If we love him, we obey him. And some of us are called to obey him in courage. Second story, much shorter. There was another man who, unlike Esther, heard a voice. He heard a voice, but the voice said a very strange thing. The man lived in a very dry region of the world, and the voice said, there's going to be a tremendous flood. And in this tremendous flood... All of the earth will be consumed except for you and your family because you've found favor in my eyes. You've walked with me. You see things rightly. You're righteous. And you live well. You're holy. And so you and your family will be saved. But 
but the rest will be wiped out and we'll start over with you and the animals that I want you to bring on this and I want you to build a boat. A football field and a half long. He didn't really say football field, but that's how long it was. And this man had never built a boat. He didn't live in an area where that was a particularly important craft. And he talked to his sons and his family members, eight of them in all, to work on this boat. And they spent their life savings building it. And they, they, they carried, as you can see in this uh, this painting from the British modern period, where they brought heavy, it took work. Every plank had to be cut from a tree every and fit and joined and tarred and put together and built so that it would be completely watertight. This took years, most likely. And you can imagine, you can see the people in the background, those of you close enough, who are out doing other more meaningful things like harvesting their wheat. And they're looking back at Noah and his family who are building this stupid boat in the middle of a desert. He clearly was suffering from Alzheimer's. He he had something, a screw loose. People said that he heard voices. They tried to get him into therapy. But he persevered. And then an interesting thing happened. When he was done with the boat, this voice told him again, go ahead and get everybody in the boat. Blue skies, sunny day. So he gets all the animals in the boat, then he gets his family in the boat, then he's the last one in the boat, and it says, and God shut the lid. Now, I'd never noticed this in the story until I was studying it this time. They sat in that doggone boat for seven days. Seven sunshiny days. Now, I imagine they had some discussions in the boat. (laughs) Seven days of supra-rational faith in what God had told him. It probably looked irrational, but it was actually supra-rational. It went beyond. It was a trust in a logic not that contradicted good logic, but that went above and beyond it because it had more knowledge. It was a, it was a faith that was supra-rational. And then you know the rest of the story. The floods came and they were saved and things started over again. He who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. When Jesus told the parable of the, uh, the man who built his house on the rock and the man who built his house on the sand, do you know what the person who built his house on the rock was likened to? Most people I know say, well, that's the man who has faith in Jesus, or that's the man who uh, lives a wise life, or that's the person who watches their thinking carefully. Well, some of those are true, and all of those fit into the answer, but Jesus said it very clearly. The man who built his house on the rock is the man who comes to me, who hears my word, and who puts them into practice, who obeys. Third and shortest story from the book of Acts. I don't have a picture for this one. This was pointed out to me by an alum this weekend. Philip is chosen as a deacon of the early church. 
that Jesus has risen from the dead and ascended to be with the Father. The early church is spreading like wildfire. Things are exciting. People are meeting Christ daily, it says. The apostles are teaching the word and praying, and people are meeting Jesus every other day. It's unbelievable. It's an exciting time. Then persecution hits because this guy named Saul starts dragging people off to prison. And they're scattered, and Philip is scattered with them. And so he decides, well, I'll go to Samaria. Now, I don't know if that was a strategy to avoid persecution. It would have been a smart one if it was, because no Jew would step inside Samaria in order to persecute him. Or if it was because he remembered that Jesus had led some people to faith in himself earlier, the woman at the well and her entire village. I like to think the latter, that he went there to to be a part of what Jesus had begun. And it says he was scattered like the rest and he went to Samaria and he preached Christ. That was the message of the early church. Christ, Jesus. He preached it and people immediately responded. He was amazed. They came to Christ in the droves. He had a tremendous work going. The apostles heard about it who were still in Jerusalem. They came down to see what was happening. They were thrilled. They prayed for the people to receive the Holy Spirit. They did. And no one could believe that Jesus' words were becoming true, that you'll be my witnesses first in Jerusalem, then in Judea, then in Samaria. They found that one hard to believe until this moment. And then to the ends of the earth, that happens about two chapters later with Cornelius, the Roman centurion. That begins. But here he is in Samaria, and this tremendous things happen. The holy double, you know, Peter and, and James come down, or John come down to make sure everything's okay. He's, and, and Philip is in a heyday. And he thinks, I'm there to follow up now. I've got to do good follow-up work. And then an angel of the Lord says to him, actually, I've got another plan for you. I want you to go down to the desert road that goes to Gaza between Jerusalem and Gaza. Okay, go. And he must have been thinking, now, wait a minute. It's, 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 it's irresponsible to be an evangelist and not be a discipler, Right? And we got to form teams to get these folks rooted in, and we're printing up some literature for them. And I mean, it just isn't right for me to leave right now. I've got a tremendous work going on, and, and, you, and I don't even know, why would you want me to go down to that desert road? And the voice doesn't say, it just says, go. And there's a wonderful sentence in the, in the book of Acts that says, it's very simply, and Philip went. And Philip went. He obeyed. He who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. He went down on the road, and then he saw a chariot coming along, and, and that same inner voice, I don't know if it was a voice from the outside or the inside, I don't know if it was an intuition, I don't know if it was an angel appearing to him, I don't know, but he knew, and the voice said, go get near that chariot. Now, chariots move faster than people walk, so that means he was jogging alongside the chariot. He looks in the back of the chariot, and there's a black man there, an Ethiopian, with those beautiful Ethiopian features, high cheekbones, small lips, pointy features, very exquisite looking people. And he's jogging along. That's all God has told him. Go to the road. He didn't know why. He went. Then he says, go get near that chariot. He didn't know why, but he did it. And then he listens. That was the last he heard from God. Then he listens. And sitting in the back of that chariot... This Ethiopian leader is reading from the book of Isaiah out loud in Hebrew, probably mispronouncing the words. 
And Philip sprung into action. He says, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I if I don't have somebody to explain it? Why don't you come up in here and explain it to me? He says, I'd be happy to. He runs, jumps up in the chariot. And they're bumping along in the chariot. And what is, what is this Ethiopian leader, leader uh, to the queen in Ethiopia, what is he reading but this scripture from Isaiah? He was led like a sheep to the slaughter. And as a lamb before the shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. And the Ethiopian asked Philip, tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? And then Philip began with that very passage of Scripture, and he told him the good news about Jesus. The same news he'd taken to the the Samaritans just a little earlier. He told him about Jesus. He started right where the man was, and he led him to Jesus, which is a very good strategy, by the way, and trying to get, instead of trying to get people where we want them to be in order to lead them, meet them where they are. Esther had a faith of courage. Noah had a, had a faith that was supra-rational. Philip, Philip had a simple faith of action. When he heard the voice, he obeyed it and went. Three stories. Three different episodes of faith, all promulgated on the idea of following a positive command. There's a whole other sermon to be made about obeying the negative commands, the things we're to avoid. Because we're supposed to obey in avoidance of certain things. They call them sins. And we're supposed to obey, in terms of other things, direction from God. But in all cases, we're meant to be obedient. Faith working itself out in love. Which form of obedience do you need to call upon in your own life right now? Is it a courageous faith to do something you know you're supposed to do and you just don't want to do it? Is it a supra-rational faith where you're being asked to do something by God that just doesn't make sense given the context that you have? And you have to trust in an intelligence larger than yours that has a bigger picture? Or is it faith like Philip's that just simply moves into action? Let's pray. Father, we thank you and love you. And we confess that we are often disobedient. We confess that we often don't even listen for your direction, but simply go our own way. Help us to rise to hear your voice through the word which you've given us, through counsel which you give us, and through the inner prompting of your spirit, which you've also given us. And help us to hear in the midst of those three sources and any other source you want to use, your true voice. And then help us respond in obedience, whether it takes courage or a setting aside of our own logic for your larger logic or simply a call to action that doesn't make sense to us. 
we pray this in Jesus' name.